So if you look at the handout, and uh, I, were handouts uh, out here when you came in? How many of you, you did not get a handout? Okay, looks like if you didn't get a handout, did anybody say you didn't get one? Maybe if there's, might check with Jim and see if they, if they're out there. Here they, here's one. So if you didn't get one, raise your hand up. We got, got some up right behind you. Look, look, look. Y'all did good picking those up. You're a lot better than college students. So what you have here is uh, just, a, just a guide, kind of one of the things, the things that we're covering. Uh, we did the prologue in the 9.15 this morning. Uh, I've sort of put together the vision into uh, chapter 1, or the first, chapter 2, the first church we did, to the letter to the church at Ephesus. So I tried to put the background stuff. I figure there's some of this information might be more familiar to some than others. But I put the things that either I thought were central or it's background information that you might not have. So I know it's hard to write down a lot of things that's just being thrown out at you. So I tried to put enough information for each church uh, so that you can at least have the, the bare bones uh, description that I had. And uh, I know two things here. So you have the prologue, the vision, letters to the seven churches. See, I've got an A and a B under that. Uh, I, I pointed this out this morning, but I'll point it out again. That there's, there's two issues here. One is, I think it is important to see every letter through the lens of this image that John saw of the exalted Christ, because he keeps coming back to that. In every one of the letters, with the exception of one, when he describes the person who's sending, he draws off of the image of the exalted Christ in order to, uh, to say who's the one sending it. And just to get, let's just go ahead and look back. Look at the, the letter to the church at Ephesus again that we did this morning. In, in 2.1, he says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. See, those images are drawn directly from the image he saw uh, of the exalted Christ. Then look at the church at Smyrna that we're getting ready to, to do here in a moment. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last and who died and came to life again. And uh, so if you look over at verse 17 of chapter 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, which is a statement about resurrection. And, um, and so now you go back and look at Smyrna again. He says, To, to him who was first and last, who died and came to life again. So he's drawing upon that image again. Look to the church at Pergamum in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You go back uh, to verse 16. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And so in, in each of these, he's drawing upon that image. So I think that's a way of saying, remember the image, remember the image, remember the image. I mean, it's a great thing if you received a letter from Paul or you received a letter from John or you received a letter from Peter. But these letters, although John put it to pen and paper, these letters are from this resurrected Christ. And I think that elevates uh, the authority of them, that they, these are directly from Christ. And he keeps drawing upon the image to, to make that point. I also think that's important because if you look at the situation of these Christians, they're often suffering. Uh, he'll mention that. You live where Satan's throne is. Uh, or you live where the, where the synagogue of Satan is. Or he talks about how they're enduring suffering. And it, it's important to see those kinds of situations through the lens of this exalted Christ. He is Lord. And somehow, even though your situation might be one of suffering or difficulty or the culture around you, oppressing you or alienating you, if you're poor, you're not poor uh, if Jesus is Lord. He's going to say to one of these churches, you're poor, the church at Smyrna, but you're rich. Well, how's that? So how am I rich? 
if my bank account says I don't have anything. Well, you've got to see your poverty through the lens of this exalted, resurrected Christ who is your Lord. And, uh, and so I, I think that's really important here to see the, each of these letters through, this, through the lens of this exalted Christ. And, and then the other thing is just the, the general format that they each follow. I think that's important as we look at each one. You get the opening where he names the church he's writing to, and then some image of the exalted Christ, that's the opening. Then affirmation, then correction, then a call to hear, and then a motivating promise in every one of these. And um, in two of the churches, there's only affirmation, Smyrna and Philadelphia. He doesn't have any correction for them. In one of the churches, he only has correction. That's the church to Laodicea, the letter to Laodicea. That's the last one. So that's three letters where it's either two of them it's all good and one it's all bad. So that's three. The other four, it's mixed. And in my experience of being out in churches in Oklahoma for 22 years, but before that I was in other churches in Texas and before that in Tennessee and Kentucky. And that's what I see more often than not. There, there's, it's mixed. You go to a church and you see some things you say, if the Spirit spoke to this church, I think the Spirit would affirm these things, but here's some areas in need of correction. That sort of mixed uh, reality is what I find in most churches. I've not found a perfect church yet, but neither have I found a church that had nothing to affirm. And, and so I, I want you to think about this as we're going through it for your own church. And I don't want you to so much think about you individually, because these letters aren't to individuals. Uh, these letters are to churches. So think about the spiritual temperature of your church. And um, as I said, Wednesday night, I'll probably ask you, if the, Spirit, if, if the Spirit were to speak to this church, what do you think the Spirit would affirm about what, what, what this church is doing? If there was to be correction, what do you think would be the correction? And... Uh, if I get through enough tonight to give me enough time to do that, I'll probably give you a chance to, to actually do that a little bit. Maybe, maybe name one area of affirmation and one area of correction. And uh, I, think that, I think that would be a good practice for all of us to do that um, for wherever we call home church. Okay, so that's a little bit of a getting us into it tonight. So now let's move on to the letter to the second church, Smyrna. Uh, beginning at verse 8, and it goes through verse 11. So here it is. Let's read it. I'll read it first. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So we start with the opening. This is the church at Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna, and I'd also point out, this is a reminder that church in the New Testament is almost always local churches. We think about church as a universal concept, that, and you can think about church that way. You can talk about the church, and it can include all those people who have believed living and dead, whatever denomination, wherever in the world they might live. That is one definition of church. That's not normally the kind of church that the New Testament's talking about. In the New Testament, these are local churches. I mean, ge there's geography to them. You could go to them. When Paul writes, you know, Paul wrote letters to seven churches. Now, he's got 13 letters, but some of them are to individuals, and some of them there's more than one letter to the same church. So you start naming them, you know, Rome, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, uh, Thessalonica, there's seven of them. So I guess you got seven, seven letters of John and seven letters of Paul. 
But those were real geographical churches, local. You could have gone to them, visited some of those meetings of those bodies. And it's the same to these churches of Revelation. And I don't think these are some sort of symbols of the church in every age. These are real life churches in Asia Minor near the end of the first century who are facing many challenges, including suffering and persecution. So I think these are geographical locations. And this particular one at Smyrna is located about 35 miles north of Ephesus. So if you, if you follow that um, postal route, you'd go to Ephesus first, coming from the island of Patmos on, on, to, on the water. You'd come to Ephesus first, then you go about 35 miles north uh, of Ephesus, and you find Smyrna. Smyrna was the first city in Asia Minor to be granted the right by the Roman Empire to build a temple to the Roman Empire. The first city in Asia Minor to have that right. And so they built a temple to the goddess Roma. And this is a place where if you were in Smyrna, you would go to show patriotism and worship to the empire. The first city to, to have that right, what would have been viewed as a privilege uh, by most Roman citizens. It wouldn't have been a privilege for a Christian living in Smyrna to have a temple like that. In fact, it would be contrary to everything within you to go worship the empire or the emperor or any of these other pagan deities. So Smyrna was a center for the worship of Rome, the empire. It was also the second city in Asia Minor that was granted permission to build a temple to the emperor. Now, Notice the difference there. You could have a temple to the empire, maybe worship the goddess Roma, and you could also have a temple for the worship of the dead emperors, and they built both. So that made this city, which was not a particularly, it, it, it doesn't stand out for much, it made it stand out because it was such a center for the worship of power the empire, uh, and the emperors. This city, Smyrna, which is another one of those cities I got to visit, I think it was five years ago, maybe it was six. It was in the spring, though. Um, Smyrna is the only city of the seven that has continuously existed even since the first century. I mean, like Philadelphia had devastating earthquakes, and they just built on top of it, so there's nothing to see there. You can't see, you can hardly see anything from the church at Philadelphia from the first century because they just built on top of the ruins of earthquakes. Ephesus, you can see a lot. It's been excavated, but it's not a continuously existing city. Izmir is a city, if you go to Turkey today, is the city that was Smyrna, and, and it's essentially the same city. Now, it's like 4 million today, and it was probably 200,000 or something like that uh, at the time that these letters were written. But this city has continuously uh, existed, and it's the only one of the cities like that. So, and in fact, I interviewed a student for a full tuition scholarship. We had those interviews about two weeks ago. And uh, one of the students, I couldn't figure out what, where he was from, from looking at his materials. And he, he's the, this student's parents are missionaries in Izmir. He lives in Izmir, uh, which is the ancient, ancient Smyrna. Okay, so that's the, the geographical location. How about who's sending this letter? We already mentioned this, but these are the words of him who is the first and the last, uh, who's the first and the last, the dead, and came to life again. So, so here we have that, what sounds very much like that alpha and omega, the first and the last. Um, let me read you a few texts from, this is not just a New Testament idea about God as the first and the last. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last, I am he. That's Isaiah 41.4. It sounds a lot like what, what John says here. Isaiah 44.6, just a couple chapters later. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says. I am the first, and I am the last. There is no God but me. 
And, and this sort of provides a nice intertextual witness to what I think, or intertextual link uh, with what we hear in Revelation with these words in Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah, you, you think about what Isaiah is saying there. He's looking ahead to, to a period where, of Babylonian captivity when Israelites are going to be carried out of Israel to Babylon. And, and I think his point is, yes, the Babylonians have their gods, and yes, they worship idols fashioned out of stone or wood, but they are not gods. They do not have power. There is only one God who is sovereign and who is the Lord, and he's the creator of all that exists. And I'm going to, to bring you back home after 40 years of exile. And I will demonstrate that I am the true God and you are my people. I'm the first. I'm the last. So I think these Isaiah passages provide a little bit of an intertextual connection. Now let's see what the message is to the church. It begins in verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty... Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the victor's crown. So what does he affirm about them? He says, I know you're suffering. And I would assume that the suffering they're undergoing is not so much just physical ailment, they're suffering because of their faith. Do you see how difficult it was to be a Christian in a place like Smyrna in the first century? There are these temples to the empire and to the emperors, and you are required as a good citizen to worship at these temples. If you refuse, it calls into question your patriotism, your commitment to the empire, to the gods of Rome, you get blamed if crops aren't producing or if some natural disaster hits and earthquakes are frequent. Well, if everybody's looking for somebody to blame for an event like an earthquake that devastates a city, so how about these Christians who refuse to pay homage to the, to the dead emperors? There are just so many ways where your refusal to participate in the idolatry would cause suffering for you. And then you think about the Jewish element here. He talks about those who, who say they are Jews. There, there were many Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Well, they didn't think that was just a religious choice and you took one route and they were taking another. You were claiming a false Messiah. You were claiming someone to be Messiah who was not Messiah if you were on the, on, of, those, of those Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah. That was a serious theological heresy and so what's going to happen to you if you're claiming Jesus is Messiah you're going to be persecuted by Jews who rejected that Jesus was the Messiah so you're stuck in the middle pagans don't like you because you're not worshiping the pagan deities Jews who reject Jesus they don't like you because you're affirming a, a heretical blasphemer as the Messiah there's nowhere to go and I just think we have no idea of what it's like to live in that kind of environment. Now, there are Christians today, right now, in the world who do, who know exactly what that feels like. We've just been fortunate to not have to experience anything like that. And I think it's interesting that the word Smyrna, as part of the name, the root of the word Smyrna, there's the, the word myrrh, uh, which was a spice that was used in, uh, for those who uh, die and are buried. Myrrh was a spice associated with death and burial. And it, in a city like Smyrna, whose name is built on a spice that is associated with death and suffering, Christians are suffering for their faith. And then he says, yeah, and I know your poverty. I know your afflictions, I know your sufferings, and I know your poverty. The gospel has always been good news to people who are poor. And um, you think about Jesus' first public words in Luke's gospel. Now, we've, we, we hear some words like at the baptism or in the temptation, but the first public words where he speaks publicly. It's, it's Luke chapter 4, 
and he goes to the synagogue, he's in the synagogue, and he picks up the scroll to read for the reading for the day, and it happens to be Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to give sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed and who are imprisoned. But the first words are, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now that's Isaiah 61. But Jesus reads it, and after he reads the scroll, he sits down, and he says to them, Now, this is being fulfilled today in your hearing. The gospel has always been good news to the poor. In in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. Not in spirit. Matthew's account says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, in Matthew 5, 3. Uh, But in Luke, it's blessed are the poor. In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But in Luke's, uh, Luke chapter 6, it's blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The gospel's always been good news for the poor. And and it's true that the early church seems to have been made up almost, I mean, a large majority of early Christians were from the, the lowest economic class. And I think that fits well with the tone of Jesus preaching and teaching. I've come to preach good news to the poor. Part of why it's such good news is at the heart of Jesus' message is the world is being turned upside down. And the first will be last. And the last will be first. If you want to be great, you must be willing to be a servant of all. But that language for someone who feels like they're at the bottom... To hear that the, the last will be first is pretty good news. That Jesus is shaking up the status quo. So for a lot of reasons, I think the gospel's always been good news for those who are poor. I think it's also true that the church was committed from the very beginning to helping those who were poor. And so I'm not surprised at all that many poor would be drawn to the gospel and would, be, would make up a majority of these early Christians in these churches. And so you suffer and you are poor. He's acknowledging something that is true of them materially. And I would say, don't make any mistakes about this. It does not always pay to be a Christian. And honesty is not always the best policy if gaining financially is your goal. If that's what you're about, just, just improving your financial situation, if that's what you live for, then it doesn't pay to be a Christian and honesty is not your best policy. You're going to have to do other things in order to achieve those, that goal, if that's your goal. And uh, I look around and I see uh, lots of unethical behavior for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is somebody trying to achieve something and they're willing to do it by any means. there's There's a basketball coach right now at Louisiana State University who's now been benched because it's evident from some FBI wiretaps that he's pay he they pay to get a player who's at LSU right now. Now, I don't like this very much because Kentucky just finished second in the SEC to LSU. <laughs> and, and the story might be about my coach next, next week, so I'm not going to harp too hard on this particular incident. But the world is full of people who are willing to do anything, whether it be unethical, immoral, in order to achieve their goals that they have in life. I think... The, the, the experience here of these early Christians speaks contrary to that. These are people who were in poverty, and they were drawn to the church, and yet he says about them, yet you are rich. Now, how can you tell me I'm rich? Look at my bank statements. Look at my, look at my wallet. I can you know, I could... I, I think I really don't have anything in my wallet tonight, but it's not because I couldn't. It's because my, my, one of my kids 
must have hit my wallet last evening when I, after I'd gone to bed. Or, I know which one it is, but I won't out him. Um, but but I, I do, I mean, if, if I don't have any money in my account and I don't have any money in my wallet, how can you say that I'm rich? And I think we have to hear that you are rich in faith. You are rich towards God. Rich in faith is a line from James chapter 2, verse 5. Luke chapter 12, verse 21 uses the phrase, being rich toward God. 1 Timothy 16, uh, 6, 18, perhaps you are rich in good deeds. Uh, or to borrow a line from Colossians, rich with the riches of Christ. So Paul's expressing a kind of wealth here that we hear him say in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, uh, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. So it's, it's that kind of reality that there is a spiritual wealth that transcends my bank account and transcends whatever's in my wallet. So that this letter seems to be saying, even if you suffer for your faith, even if you are thrown in prison for your faith, even if you die for your faith, you are rich. Now this is the opposite of, I'll give you an early preview of a Wednesday night. Look at the last of the seven churches, the church at Laodicea. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. He says, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. Boy, doesn't that sound self-sufficient? I'm rich, I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. Now that's talking about bank account. Now here, show the bank account, it's full. Look at my wallet, full. And yet he says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So there is a sense in which you can be poor materially and yet be rich spiritually. Now which would you ultimately rather have and at the same time like those at Laodicea there is a reality in which you can be wealthy and yet be poor in the things that matter and so uh, I would contrast this church with the other one now what's their other experience I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are of the synagogue of Satan so what are they experiencing here suffering poverty, and slander. And it, one thing is certain from reading the New Testament. The early Christians were slandered. First uh, Peter, repeatedly, and we did First Peter a year ago in this building, in this room. First um, Peter chapter 3, Peter is calling on the Christians there. He says, when people slander you, it's even more important that your conduct be above board so that by, by seeing, by observing your deeds, it will make their slander a lie and they will glorify God. I mean, it assumes that you're going to be slandered. Now, live your life in such a way that it makes the slander a lie. There's no question about whether you're going to be slandered, Peter is saying to his audience. And, and slander is, is one of these, we, we continue to see it coming up with respect to early Christians. Um, and the word he uses here for slander is blasphemia. Can you hear that word? Can you hear the English word we just drawed straight from it? Blasphemy? That's the word he uses here to describe the slander of the church. That's not typically the word used to describe slander against people. That's usually a word reserved for what people do with, towards God. Blasphemy towards God. But here it's used of the Christians. That the thing that they're doing, they're slandering you, and he uses this word for blasphemy. They're, they're slandering you, but with this word. And I think maybe what he's doing, he's identifying the slander against the Christians as ultimately it's as if they're doing it to God. If people are slandering you because of your faith, it is tantamount to them slandering the name of God. There's such an identification between God and his people. If, if you're slandering if I'm slandering you, I'm also slandering God. 
You remember when Paul is on the road to Damascus and he sees the blinding light and, and the voice speaking from it he discerns is the risen Lord at some point in that. And you remember what, what, what the voice says to him, the risen Lord says to him out of that light? Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the church, which is what Paul was doing. He wasn't literally persecuting Jesus. Jesus was, was, had already, perhaps as many as three years before, Jesus had already ascended into the clouds. So why does Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? It seems like because there's such a close identification between Christ and his people. And I think maybe that's why he uses the blasphemy word here. If, you blaspheme, if you're blaspheming a Christian for doing what is right, in, a, in essence, you're blaspheming God. So 1 Peter talks about that kind of slander. We also know that in A.D. 64, now I don't think that's the setting for the book of Revelation. I think it's the end of the first century. But some people actually put the book of Revelation in the 60s. And the suffering that's happening is the suffering under Nero. You know, Nero was the Roman emperor that merely burned down Rome. And he needed a scapegoat. And Christians were the perfect scapegoat. So he accused the Christians, and so they used them to light the public gardens, rolled them in pitch and set them on fire and fed them to lions and beat them with clubs. And so this persecution uh, is going on. And the historian Tacitus, Roman historian Tacitus, who was a member of the Roman aristocracy and was close to Roman emperors, commented this about Christians who were accused by Nero. So this is like a defense of slandering and actually murdering Christians. Here's what Tacitus says about the Christians. They were infamous for their abominations. He goes on to say later, they are antisocial and have a hidden hatred for mankind. And in the next passage, he says Christianity is a destructive superstition. Now, if that's what Tacitus is saying, and he sort of has the ear of the emperor, you know that's what the emperor is saying. And those are the kinds of slanderous charges that were being leveled towards Christians, and I, I would expect that's exactly the kinds of things that were being said about Christians in Smyrna. But who's doing it? Here, he says, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So it sounds like the slander is actually coming from uh, Jewish um, sources. Now, what would he mean by synagogue of Satan? By those who say they are Jews but are not, and are, but are of the synagogue of Satan. What would, what would make someone Jewish? Um, you could point to maybe birth certificate. That'd be part of it. But aren't there certain observances that Jews would practice that would, that would identify you as a Jew, right? Like what would be one of the things you'd expect a Jew to do that would point them out to identify them as Jewish? Circumcision would be, that's the first thing, at eight days. Uh, so if you're male, circumcision would be one of those marks that would identify you as Jewish. What else? Observance of Passover, observance of the religious calendar, and Passover is an annual festival, that would be one. How about the weekly observance? Sabbath observance. See, while everybody else is working, carrying out their regular weekly tasks, Jews were resting. They were honoring God on that day. That set them apart. Uh, how about what you all are getting ready to do here, or I guess we will do, Maybe I, do, do I get to eat while you all eat? No, I think I talk while you eat. That doesn't seem right. Uh, but uh, how about eating? I, I wonder, if, is it Jimmy John's? Yeah. You think there'll be any ham sandwiches there? Oh, I, what? You'll eat it for me. You'll defile yourself for me. But uh, wouldn't your diet, what you ate, or what you, better yet, what you refused to eat, was part of what distinguished a Jew from everybody else in, in the world. So you could observe, you have these sort of external observances, but did that really, would that really make you Jewish just because you had all these external observances? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where he's talking about what makes a Jew a Jew. 
He says, um, a person is not a Jew if they are one outwardly, but a person is a Jew if they are one inwardly. And I think he's pointing to exactly what I'm saying. There's all sorts of external observances that could make one appear, you know, you would, you would identify with Judaism, but that doesn't mean you're truly Jewish. It's not the external, it's the internal. It would be relationship with God. It would be living in such a way that it honors God. These would be the things that would mark you off as uh, being truly Jewish. Well, if they're slandering the Christians, what does that say about their connection to the true God? And it reminds me of a heated exchange between Jesus and some religious leaders in John chapter 8. They're rejecting that he is the Messiah, and there's a little bit of a back and forth going on between them. And Jesus rebukes them for their rejection of him. And they say, we, uh, we are the children of Abraham, or Abraham is our father. That's sort of a way to defend themselves against what Jesus has said. And here's what Jesus says to them in response. If you were Abraham's children, you would be de- doing the works of Abraham. But you are of your father, the devil. That's pretty strong, by the way. Just a side note. That's really strong. They claim their father to be Abraham. He says your father is the devil. Um, now, if you get a, people, a group of people gathering together, who, in this case, they were rejecting Jesus as Messiah, but what if they are slandering the church or Christians within the church? Wouldn't their father also be the devil? Isn't there a connection perhaps you could draw there? So they meet together in the synagogue. I have no doubt that we know there were synagogues. Uh, at, in fact, I saw uh, what might have been a synagogue that went all the way back to the first century when I was in Smyrna. So you can go to meet together at your synagogue, but if you don't have a connection to God and your father is the devil, that's a synagogue of Satan. And the word Satan means slanderer, which fits perfectly uh, with, with his uh, phrase here, but you are of a synagogue of Satan. And then he says, don't fear the suffering you're going to endure. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison, leaving no doubt about who's ultimately responsible for the suffering they're undergoing. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now, this would be one of those places where you have to remember Revelation, the book of Revelation, and apocalyptic literature in general is highly symbolic. Numbers are often symbolic. We don't take them literally. And I don't think that the message here is get your calendar out and, and mark off one today and you got nine more days of this and then it's going to end. But I think ten days is a way of saying your, your suffering is going to be short. Uh, at least by comparison uh, to the long game of uh, your relationship with me. Uh, but it's, a, it's an encouragement to them to, to not give up. Don't be afraid. It's going to be short, your time of suffering. And you remember what Jesus said about those who could only kill the body? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Should you fear those who can only kill the body? He says, well, don't, don't fear the one who can only kill the body, but the one who can kill body and soul. And I think that's just a call to keep your eyes uh, fixed on God in the midst of this kind of circumstance. He says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown, uh, the victor's crown. So there's two crowns in the New Testament. There's two, two Greek words for the crown. One is diadema like diadem, and that, that would be like a royal crown. And then there's Stephanos, so if your name's Stephen, you got a nice name, it means crown. And that word for crown, Stephanos, was like the uh, olive, uh, sort of olive crown. Um, or, uh, well, what is olive the word I'm thinking? Um, the leaves. Um, you know what I'm talking about, not tea leaves. I don't know why I'm thinking tea leaves. But... Laurel, that's the word I'm looking for. Not tea, laurel, the laurel wreath. Now, that, it was absolutely worthless. 
I mean, just for the, the, the materials that go into it, it's, it's a laurel wreath crown. But because it took such great discipline and commitment to earn it, it's the kind of crown you win in the Olympic Games. Uh, and if you've ever trained and competed for something and won, uh, you know the value of whatever it is they give you uh, to signify your victory. And when I, I've, I've done a couple of marathons, I've done two. And um, the first one was, even though I ran the second one faster, the first one was the one, because I, I had this in my head, I, I needed to run a marathon. I felt like it was my destiny to do a marathon. So I started all the training for it and finally did it. And, and this Marine, it was the Marine Corps Marathon, and they, they put a, you know, draped a medallion around my neck when I crossed the, the, the finish line. And, I mean, it's worthless. I mean, it's not made of any kind of <laughs> expensive material. It's not gold or silver or platinum or anything like that. It might be pewter. I doubt it. I don't know what it is. It's not fading, though, yet. But I, there's no price on I mean, that, that's worth a great deal more to me than just the materials that it, to make it because of what it signifies. And uh, yesterday I was at the fairgrounds watching high school, Oklahoma high school basketball. And uh, you got these 2A, 3A, 4A schools. And um, I know what it takes. I, my younger son goes to Dale. So... Uh, we were there to watch Dale girls against Howe. And I've watched some of these girls now for five years. Some of them when they were in junior high. I watched them play in junior high. I see them there in that gym in the summer. And Dale's getting a new gym. It's being constructed right now. It's almost finished. But that old gym had no air condition. And if the temperature got to 80, there was like no air moving in that gym. It would get stifling hot I've been in there with with my son working out and it 100 degrees in the summer and you see a bunch of those high school kids up there working in, in that gym like 100 degrees I'm not exaggerating I know what some of those kids have sacrificed and put into that and uh, they came in second and I don't know how they feel about their medal today but those girls from how they've sacrificed just as much and that medallion they were hanging around their neck for the winner of that, most of those kids, you couldn't buy that off of them today. And, and this is the crown that he promises. It's a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of endurance. And the person who, who, who grants it to them is this sovereign Lord that we saw in this opening section. So, the end of this, he says in verse 11, now here's the call to hear. So, We've got the opening. Here was the message. All affirmation. You notice he didn't say anything, but I have this against you. There's no hint here that there's any problems. It's all I know about your suffering. I know about your poverty. I know about the slander from the synagogue of Satan. Those who claim to be Jewish but are not. And now he says, it's the call to hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's, it's, a, it's a funny thing about the way God has made us. We have eyelids, right? You can close your eyes. Sometimes we, I mean, these protect your eyes. You know, I was walking yesterday and it was, the wind was blowing dusty. Close your eyes. Helps keep the dust out. I mean, these are protectors for your eyes. Think about how dry your eyes would get if you couldn't blink. And it's kind of allows you to moisten them. But look at your ears. You don't have ear lids. Uh, God didn't make us with ear lids. And, and here's a recognition to listen, hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. We're not made for, for, for blocking out, particularly what the Spirit might have to say. Eugene Peterson, the person who did the translation, the message, which is, you shouldn't use that as a study Bible. But I do think it's worth reading just for like a commentary on the text. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. And he has a book on the book, uh, a little book on the book of Revelation called Reversed Thunder. 
And here's what he says about listening. He says, refusing to hear God's voice is akin to ignoring vast symphonies of sound reverberating down the corridors of history and only hearing the rusty squeakings of a few hinges. That's his contrast between listening, listening to what the Spirit has to say and refusing to hear. I could never say it this eloquently, and I'm going to read it again. To ignore God's voice is akin to ignoring vast symphonies of sound reverberating down the corridors of history and choosing only to hear the rusty squeakings of a few hinges. Or, he says, there are trumpet voices of ecstasy sounding heights and depths of glory, and all we hear are assorted grunts and groans. I mean, the voice of the Spirit is there if we're willing to hear. So we don't have ear lids, so listen. And um, then he says, here's the motivating promise. Um, in the latter part of verse 11. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So there's a first death. Thankfully, none of us have experienced that yet. We wouldn't be here tonight. Physical death is, or, or the first death is your physical death. Everybody's going to experience that if, if we live long enough, right? Everybody's going to experience that. Believer, non-believer, that's part of the human condition. But there is a second death that those who are in Christ will not experience or endure. Now he says a little bit more about that. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. Revelation's good about saying things and then giving you more information later if you just keep reading. Revelation's not good for proof texting a little bit or reading a little bit here or there. It's, it's good to read right through it few times. So Revelation 20, 13 through 15. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades treated them as if they're, they're personified here. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So now we're talking about a spiritual death. Now we're talking about an eternal death. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we shouldn't fear either one of these deaths. We'll experience the first death, a natural death, but we have no need to fear it. And we won't experience the second death because of the resurrection. So we certainly have no need to fear it. So here is the motivating promise to the one who is victorious. We will not be hurt at all by the second death. We will not be thrown into the lake of fire. So hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. So we saw the letter to the church at Ephesus, right? Can you think about what did he affirm in them from this morning? I'm, I'm calling on you to think now. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know your patient endurance. Right? Um, what else does he say? You, that you do not tolerate false teaching. Uh, they give no place for it. And specifically, he names the Nicolaitans, which I'm going to explain in the next to Perg in Pergamum. Uh, but he did have something against them. What did he have against them? They, they left their first love. Uh, they lost their love that they had at the first. And so, it, so he's calling upon them to, re to remember what that relationship was like when you were excited, when you were enthusiastic, when you were motivated. Uh, to, to, to know him more. Repent if you've fallen away from that and return to those things that stirred up that love. So now the church at Smyrna, there's only affirmation. I know your suffering. I know your poverty. I know the slander that is spoken against you. Don't fear it. It's not going to last forever. And you're not going to experience the second death. The promise to the church at Ephesus was you will eat from the tree of life. 
See, that's, that's pretty close to not experiencing the second death, to eat from the tree of life. Now, to clean, clean that up a little bit, now, so I'm finished with the first two, except let me say something because I was running out of time this morning and didn't get to say it. But this tree of life language uh, in verse 7b, chapter 2, verse 7, that he spoke to Ephesus, so I'm just going to say this now because I can. You're not going to oppose me. So I'm going to go back and just say this. We all know what the tree of life is in Genesis 2, 8, and 9, that tree that they were exiled from. But the word he uses here in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, to describe the tree of life is a, is a Greek word, ksulon. It's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, cursed is, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's a word also, well, it's a word for tree normally, but you can also translate it cross. Because Jesus dies on a tree, right? Um, and so, the, and it's also 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Peter uses the same word, and it's usually translated cross, about Jesus dying on the cross. So the tree of life, the ksulon, that the word that is used here is a word that can also mean cross. What's the tree of life for Christians? The cross is the tree of life. It's the tree that gives life. Not a piece of fruit in a garden. A piece of wood upon which the prince of glory died. Um, and I think there's a connection that's trying to be drawn here with the word he uses for tree. It's not the normal word you'd use for tree. It's a word that can also mean wood or cross. So when he says, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, uh, which is in the paradise of God, uh, I think there's a connection being drawn to something more than the fruit in the garden. But that's it. So we've got Ephesus, we've got Smyrna. So it's five till, so it's time to take a break. <laughs>